to the stage. She's the senior nurse educator for Tresillian and in this session she'll be talking to you about infant mental health. So hello everybody. I'm Fran Chavez from Tresillian. I'm the senior nurse educator there um, and today we're going to talk about infant mental health. So I'm guessing that you all know a bit about it because most of, mostly when we talk about infant mental health, we talk about attachment, don't we? So I'm going to do a bit about attachment. But when I was preparing for this talk, I sort of went around the nurses at Tresillian and I said to them, so I'm going to do this talk and I'm wondering what would be a really good thing to talk about. And so you guys are all working in the units and you, what would you like to know? And they said, well, what would be really good to know is this, what we like knowing about is the sorts of things that we like to know, we like to teach the mothers about the, the sorts of behaviours that are really good for, to promote a secure attachment. And also what the outcomes are if we don't get it right for them. So I thought, okay, well, let's have a think about that. So that's what I'm sort of going to do today. We'll do that. We'll talk about the behaviours that we work with for mothers and we'll talk about some of the outcomes, which we've already sort of talked about. So I'm just going to go through stuff like that. So you can see I've got a picture there. When I was going through pictures and I was looking at photos of mothers and babies and then suddenly I came across this, this um, painting, and I know it's got that silly thing across, the, across it. And I was looking for something that told us a story about infant mental health. And I just looked at that and I thought, you know, that's telling us something about what it's meant to be. It's meant to be about a parent, in this case a mother, and her baby, and they're gazing at each other with absolute delight and love. And they're, they're even holding hands. And that baby's moulded into his mother. So you can see that what they're doing with each other is being with each other right in that moment. There's eye-to-eye -eye contact, there's touch. There's so much there that's making them be with each other in that moment. There's nothing else going on but two people engaging in love. This is what infant mental health's about. It's about two people being with each other in the moment and this is where brain connections occur. If this mother does this all the time, what this baby knows about is that I'm worthwhile and I'm special. So this is what infant mental health is about. So we're child and family health nurses, so what's it mean to our practice? Well, I was thinking about this, I was thinking, well, what's different about nurses to doctors? Because we know that lots of mothers go to doctors and they get the baby weighed and they get the baby measured and then they just go away and they maybe not come to us. So what's the difference? Why do some mothers come to us and some mothers don't? Or parents, let's, you know, do caregiver, parent, whatever. 
So the difference, I guess, is that doctors treat and they cure and they just, you know, say, do this and off you go. And people will go away and they'll treat themselves and they'll do what they need to do and, they'll, and, they, and they're okay. They don't need to do anything else. The difference for nurses, what nurses do is care. So when a parent can't care for themselves and their baby and they're confused about what the treatment or the cure is, they often just come to the nurse because they need to be cared for. And the nurse then does the caring part of it because they're, they're confused. They don't know what to do. The instructions aren't quite clear or the, the, the treatment's not quite clear. So what we do is the caring part and the, and the interpretation of an instruction or the continuation of the care and helping them through until they're able to care for themselves again. So really that's what we do. We do a lot of that interpretation and finding out, for example, there's often a question of why doesn't my baby sleep? And that question is loaded. And sometimes the doctor goes, well, you know what, I don't know, and maybe you need to do I don't, some you know, quick and dirty answer. Whereas we do a whole lot of exploring. So that's the caring part. So what are we going to do today? I need to see before we do this. So what we'll think about today is how to con help a parent connect the baby's behaviours. Oh, I better do this. Connect the baby's behaviours to their feelings. So they, that allows us to interpret the baby's feelings accurately to the caregiver. Increase the caregiver's reflective functioning or what we call mentalising capacity. We help the caregiver see through the eyes of their baby so that enhances their ability to reflect on their baby's experiences because often parents just don't think about it through the baby's point of view. And we help the caregiver see the baby as an individual, different to them. Oh, there's a baby. <laughs> so sweet. So we can increase sensitive caregiving qualities to enhance the development of secure attachment help them interpret the important ways their baby um, communicates. So what we think about is the baby's nonverbal cues and other communications, because we know that babies communicate very well through nonverbal cues and their states of consciousness, which I'll talk more about in our next session. And we keep, and we increase, uh, sorry, and we increase the caregiver's ability to recognise and respond to the infant's cues of distress, which is about their attachment signals. So that's what we'll think about today. So what we know is early relationships and interactions shape the, baby's, the baby and the growing child's um, mental health. So we were talking about this earlier. April talked to you about this. What we need to understand, the factors that influence the baby and the child's mental health. So we do have risk and we do have protective factors, which is what we've been talking about already. So developing a close and caring relationship with the primary caregiver is central to all future relationships and social and emotional and cognitive development. 
So this is what we're doing in infant mental health. We recognise that relationships are absolutely central to how the baby is going to develop. So these are the key developmental tasks of infancy. And there's rather a lot. So the key developmental task is to attach to the caregiver. And that happens over the first 12 months of life. They've got social and emotional development. And that happens actually over the first three years of life. So they've got a lot to do with regard to that. Of course, cognitive development. So they've got to reach all these milestones. They've got to develop the ability to self-regulate and soothe themselves, which takes a lot of time. And of course, their physical development. So they have all these milestones to reach. And we know that, you know, that's what we're doing. We're, we're watching their development, we're gauging it, we're helping a parent understand their developmental milestones. So there's a lot to do for this baby and to help a parent understand that all these things are happening bit by bit by bit. And attachment also happens bit by bit by bit, except we can't see it. This is an internal developmental process. So the first relationship with the caregiver is the baby's first experience of a love relationship. So the baby's falling in love with the parent and the parent is falling in love with the baby. And we know that relationships are central to human beings. There's nothing more precious to any of us than our intimate relationships. Even if they're a bit wonky, even if they're a bit troubled, they're absolutely central to us all. We, are, um, we have a social brain. Our brain is wired to relate to other people. And that's why we talk about the first three years as being so important in growth and development because our brain is wiring up and it's wiring up because of the social interactions between the mother and the baby. And that's how it's being built and wired. So over the first year, the infant develops specific and emotional attachment to an attachment figure. So that's the primary caregiver. Now we have an attachment system and this ensures the infant's survival. So the attachment system is what enables the infant to survive. This is about the baby crying and calling. So situations that activate the atta attachment behavior are internal so pain, hunger, tiredness and, and discomfort. And external, such as frightening situations, the caregiver absence, or frightening caregiver behaviour, or rejection from the caregiver, or withdrawal of the caregiver. So the attachment system of the infant is reassured by the physical proximity of the caregiver. As soon as the infant's reassured, he's ready to explore his environment again. So we call it the attachment system because the attachment system is activated when the infant is fearful or some other stress is upon it. But once it's assuaged and the infant feels comfortable and safe again, he's ready to explore his environment again. And that's, that's a reciprocal motivational system. So there's two. 
So the caregiver's moment-by-moment -moment interactions is what forms the child's attachment. And that's what we mean by that's how the brain is wired. This is what happens to the infant, and that's why the relationship is so important. So we want a caregiver who provides highly sensitive interactions and is available and responsive and consistent. And this will enhance the development of a secure attachment. So that's what we're looking for and that's what we want to help a caregiver be. And sometimes a caregiver just isn't. But they don't know they aren't. <laughs> and that's why we want to work with them effectively. If they, if they knew they weren't, they would do it. So a secure detachment, and this is what defines it. This is a baby who's able to make good use of his caregiver to, to navigate the world. So when we mean navigate, you know, when we can get around her, we can find our way around effectively, you know, we circumnavigate the world, so that means we can find our way around the, the countries. So that's what a baby's doing. So a secure relationship develops based on repeated quality experiences. So this is like the caregiver on the front slide. This caregiver keeps smiling and cuddling and holding hands and the baby is delighted in what's going on and smiles back and they gaze at each other. So the baby has been cons consistently trusts that his caregiver will be available for safety and security when he's frightened or under stress. So it's trusting. I trust that you're available to me. So these are the babies who trust that when they're separated that, that, they, that the caregiver will be happy to see them and will, will come back when they need help. So this is what a secure caregiver looks like. They're more consistent and responsive to their infant's cues. They're quicker to pick their baby up when they cry. They're inclined to hold their baby longer with more pleasure. What they do is engage in turn-taking. You've heard of serve and return, yeah? So what, that's what they do. When their baby smiles, they smile back immediately. When their baby wants to play, then they play appropriately. When their baby vocalises, they vocalise back. They don't, their babe, they don't do that stuff like their baby vocalises and they, they, don't, they just turn away and there's nothing. They respond to distress promptly. So when the attachment system is activated, they respond in some way, shape or manner. They might vocalise, they might say, are you okay? They might, they might make a little crooning sound. They let the baby know that there's, that there's something happening. They empathise with the baby's experience. So, yeah, they say, what's happening? Are you okay? Or are you having a good time? So they, they, they do something. They recognise emotion. They're interested in mutual and cooperative play and interactions. Communication and interactions are reciprocal. They're back and forward. They repair disruptions and mismatches. So that's not to say a secure caregiver never gets it wrong because it's important to get it wrong. If a baby never gets an interaction that's, that's a, a mismatch interaction, they never learn that relationships sometimes go wrong. So it's important. 
because relationships do go wrong sometimes. What's important about a disruption or a mismatch is the caregiver recognises it and goes, whoops, uh-oh, sorry, let's get that right. And so the baby learns that relationships can, can sometimes mess up, but you can fix them again. And so that's how we work with that. So then the, the mother or the parent displays pay, playfulness, pleasure and delight and the caregiver manages their own emotions effectively. So this is what happens. The caregiver shapes how the baby feels about themselves in the relationship. So when the caregiver is doing all of this stuff, they're shaping how the baby feels, feeling about themselves. I, when all this is happening, the baby starts to feel good about themselves, happy. I'm a nice person, I'm a good person, I'm enjoyed. They also start to shape how the baby feels about other people. People are nice to me, this is a good feeling. We, you know, I have a good time with people. And this builds a template for other future relationships. And it's called the internal working model. This is what the baby will carry forward. So this throughout, so throughout the first 12 months of a secure caregiver, if the caregiver provides that consistent message when I'm and the baby thinks or begins to internalise when I'm frightened or threatened, I can count on you always to be there. For comfort, you reassure me and make me feel good. This consistent repeated pattern establishes trust and I feel good about myself and know you will always help. And this generalises throughout the lifespan to other relationships. And that's a secure person. So let's look at secure caregiving characteristics. So this is a secure caregiver doing some nice mutual gaze. So this is what we look for. And at Tresillium we think about this and this is one of our, what we call our cue cards that we use with our parents. And we call this mutual gaze. And we look for this, we, we, we encourage this kind of um, uh, mutual gaze. So this is matching each other's facial expressions. So can you see they're mirroring? And you can see that this parent's eyes and the baby's eyes are together. They're matching, they're right on each other. So the baby doesn't have to move or tilt his head back or move anywhere. The mother has placed her head exactly where that baby needs to be. So they're very attuned and they're very synchronised. So that mother's very, she's re, she really knows what her baby needs to be able to look at her and, and enjoy her face and her gaze. This mother is doing verbalisations with her infant. And what we want is verbalisations that show affection, warmth and love. And what we want her to be saying is, I'm glad you're here. I can see you're surprised, happy, interested. I love you. So what verbalisations the baby needs are to hear affection, to learn about his world, that, you know, it's raining outside, that, you know, you have lovely blue eyes, you've got cute toes, 
all of those things right from when he's a very little baby. So we're building brain connections that say, I love you, but also that his world is an interesting world, that he's got cute toes, that these are his toes, that these are his fingers, that there is rain outside. So that that's all of those things are laying and wiring down, wiring up his brain. This is touch, and touch is essential. It's sensitive, gentle, and loving, and affectionate. And this gives that baby a sense of being held. It gives, you know, a sense of being in space, because, you know, when they're little, that, you know, the feeling of being in space can be either um, very scary, or it can feel good, because you're held and comfortable. So it's that proprioception that we, we think about with babies because we, we want to, they, they love to feel held and comfortable, touch is important, but also to be held in space so that they can feel the movement and, and enjoy the movement of being safe and held. Massage is good too if both mother and baby enjoy it. So we know infant massage is very good. I just thought I'd demonstrate expert cuddling from kitties. I just needed to have a gratuitous cat in there somewhere. So here we go, and this is really important for secure attachment. We need a prompt response to crying and distress because crying is the attachment system asking for help. This is so important, and I think it's one of those things that we often often underestimate and often we need to really think about when we work with parents is about how are they responding to their infants crying. So this is really important. So crying is the baby's most powerful way to let the caregiver know he needs comfort and reassurance. So sometimes a parent does, doesn't really know why the baby's crying and we, we tell them, you know, pick them up and reassure them. And, but we really need to let them know, understand that this is the attachment system. And it's the attachment system saying, I need to feel safe in your arms. I need physical contact, tender care and protection. And it always is during moments of fear or threat, the baby needs comfort and security. And this is how trust builds. And it doesn't matter if they're hungry or tired or they're whatever, if they're crying, it's the attachment system. And they need comfort and safety. It's an aversive behaviour and it's meant to be, it's meant to make people upset because it's, it's meant to indicate the baby needs help, the baby needs comfort. And so the parent's meant to feel upset. And, and it's okay for them to feel upset because it's meant to make them do something. That's how it's biologically developed. We're driven to do something. So it's important for parents to know it's all really normal for them to get upset. So it's, this is how we help them understand and how we help them learn to do something about it. So this is how we respond to distress. And this is the behavioral responses of a secure caregiver this is what a secure caregiver will do. They flexibly explore what the baby needs to soothe. So they're able to, to, to think up several things. So they might 
look at the baby and show a kind, loving, soft face. They might call to the baby, put their hand on the baby, gently rock the baby, pat. The baby may not settle, then they may pick the baby up and rock and kiss and cuddle and soothe and pat. So they have a, they have a repertoire of ways to soothe. They may rock and they may do all sorts of things. They may feed, they may take a baby for a walk. They, they, they flexibly move from one soothing action until they find a way to settle their baby. It's also the ability to figure out what's wrong with their baby. So they don't just assume the baby's being naughty or the baby's just hungry and so they automatically breastfeed or bottle feed every time the baby squawks. And they have the empathy to make the effort to effectively soothe the baby in the first place. So they have empathy about the crying. They go, oh, what's wrong? What's happening? Have you got a you know, tummy ache? Or are you lonely? Are you upset? Are you frightened? Whereas the response of an insecure caregiver is they may stick to a rigid, a rigid, inflexible strategy. They may just immediately scoop the baby up and do really active rocking, back and forward and back and forward and back and forward. Back. I'm sure you've seen this one. Or just immediately feed the baby. Nothing else, just feed the baby. Or do nothing. The distorted ideas and beliefs about why a baby cries is about that stuff about they're naughty, they're just trying to get at me, they're spoilt, they're, they're deliberately doing something. All of those distorted ideas, that, that's the distorted stuff. And they can be inconsistent, so they can be sometimes soothing and, and do what they need to do, other times they can just give up. They just go, I don't know what to do. I can't do anything about it. They can be rejecting. They can be hostile. So this is what we, this is what we like to do. This is how you can help a caregiver who has no idea why there's distress. You can help them um, correctly identify the source of distress. You can say, let's think about why your baby might be crying. Instead of, you know, if a, if a caregiver just automatically feeds, you could sort of go, you know, well, maybe we could think through some of the things why your baby might be crying. Help them to, to be prompt, because if you're more prompt, as I've said there, if you, the faster you respond to distress, the quicker the baby will stop crying. So five to 10 seconds, or even 15 seconds, once a baby's crying full bore, you need to respond. That's too long. 15 seconds is too long for a baby, and so once they're going at full bore, you need to pick them up or something. They need to be emotionally available. So if they can't regulate themselves, then we need to give them some strategies to regulate. So, so deep breathing, that's a good strategy, because if you think that they're too anxious, then they're not going to be able to do anything. Their, their body's flooding with you know, adrenaline and all sorts of those think hormones and so they need to calm down themselves. So they have strategies like deep breathing or running up and down the steps to get rid of it, something like that. So you adapt their soothing based on their infant's level of distress. So the baby may be only grumbling or something, so they may just, you know, tap or, you know, do something little. We help them get to understand their nonverbal cues. 
When we soothe, we do repetitive, responsive and paced soothing. We don't do all sorts of active, wild, busy things. We help them do, you know, reflexible stuff. And what we help them understand that if they can do that, they'll both feel satisfied and successful. When you feel satisfied and successful, you, must, you, you will repeat it, won't you? If you feel successful, you'll repeat something. And that's how you get parents to, to keep repeating strategies that you give them. So we'll just do a little bit of attachment here. Are we still doing attachment? We're all doing attachment all over the place. So when the attachment figure provides this type of quality caregiving, this is the secure base that we all talk about, or the safe haven that we, we all um, we understand. So we know, and this is so important, that the baby experiences the world through his caregiver. And this is what, you know, this is the, the, the Winnicott words, is that there's no such thing as a baby. So, of course, there is a baby, but there's no such thing as a baby without the mother or somebody with the baby. And so his words were, when you set out to describe a baby, you'll find that you're describing a baby and someone. So I'll just give you a little word on fathers because they seem to get left out. So what we know is that fathers, you know, of course fathers attach to their babies, but we often think, you know, they just do it the same as a mother. But they don't actually do that. And the evidence, there's a lot more evidence on the way fathers um, attach to their babies and, and their kids. And fathers complement the mother's attachment. So they're doing, they do different things together. And, it's, and, it, and it just so makes sense. Because we, we're not the same. Men and women are different in so many ways. Men use sensitive play. They support exploration and learning. So we call this responsive structuring and they open the child to the outside world. So women do that more internal stuff, and men do that playing. So you know how, you know, kind of men come home and, and in the evening there's all this, you know, rambunctious, you know, play just before bedtime, and it's kind of like, wow, you know, this just totally sucks. But they're meant to do that. So it's about planning the day around something that's really important for brain development. And it's to, to slot it in before a, a, a really good, consistent, soothing bedtime routine. What fathers do is, is do the work of um, enabling an infant to experience more active play, and in fact, I was talking before about moving in space, that proprioceptive stuff. That's what fathers do. They move the infant around. They play in a way that enables the infant to feel the world in, a mo in movement. So, they're, but they're, the, the attachment to the father is more evident, evident in the second year, around 18 months. So it's a complementary attachment more more so than so it's more 
What's the word I'm looking for? So as I'm, so as I'm saying, mums do more of the, this, this holding in and this kind of stuff, whereas dads do more of the playing world. So it's quite interesting. Um, so there's a lot more I could say on that, but I, I, I didn't put it in, but um, we've got another book coming out in next May, and I've done a whole chapter on dads, and it's all about that. So let's look quickly at insecure. So insecure attachment occurs when the child experiences the caregiver as uh, inconsistent or hostile or rejecting or withdrawn. So the insecure caregiver doesn't consistently provide the type of care the secure caregiver provides. So caregivers with insecure attachments really, they love their babies just as much, but they're just not as good as responding to their child's attachment needs. So it's not a pathology. So am I good there? Yeah. So when we think about this, and, I've, and I decided this is what I'd do to say. This, from, this is from the child's voice. This is an anxious, ambivalent attachment. And so if you asked a child what was happening for them, they would tell you, when I'm frightened or scared, I don't know if you're going to help me or not. Sometimes you do, but other times you push me away before I'm ready. I feel so angry when you do that. I don't know whether I want you to hold me or put me down. Sometimes I just feel helpless and don't know how to respond to you. How can I explore if I can't trust that you're going to help me? So I have to keep my eye on you. That's what they would say. So then we would talk to a child with an avoidant attachment. That's what they'd say to you. When I'm frightened or scared, I know that you can't help me when I'm crying or upset. I know that I have to sort out my own emotions if I want to stay close to you to make sure I'm safe. I don't really need any help because I'm strong. I'll try to play and preoccupy myself so I can avoid any feelings. So that's what's going on and that's what's going to take them through. If we, if we don't try and do something, that's what happens by 12 to 18 months. So throughout the first 12 months, an insecure caregiver provides the baby with this consistent message. And the baby will be thinking, when I'm frightened or threatened, I can't really count on you to always be there to comfort, reassure me, or make me feel good. And this consistent, repeated pattern establishes a lack of trust. I don't feel so good about myself and don't trust that you will always help me out when I need you. So this generalizes to other relationships over the lifespan. So these babies get distracted about exploring because they, they kind of don't trust that they'll always get their attachment needs met. Whereas the secure baby knows that their attachment needs will be met, so they can happily explore their, their environment. 
which leads on to the outcome, they can go off and learn. They can go to school and learn ultimately. So we can see where the first 2,000 days is fitting in. So these are the qualities of insecure caregiving and their types. So, you know, you won't, this won't be for every caregiver. Um, you know, this is, uh, you, they can be emotionally unpredictable, have difficulties with self-regulation. So for some in, insecure types of parents, the difficulty with self-regulation may be angry, you know, just have problems with anger, or maybe unable to show feelings, emotionally unavailable. So difficulties with self-regulation can be unable to have feelings or overly catastrophe. It's all too much. So you can see that's the problems. Emotionally inconsistent. So sometimes available, sometimes not available. Helpless, a helpless parent. So collapses in the face of, of the child's attachment needs. So we have that at Tresillian a lot. A helpless, unable to do anything, you know, just collapses in the face of the child's needs. Rejecting, and when we say rejecting, we mean emotionally rejecting. So when the child needs emotional help, they just can't do it but at other times perfectly okay so when you think about this these types of caregiving behaviors it it works with regard to the emotional needs of the child the rest of the caregiving looks absolutely fine that's why they love their child so you know they care for their child, they, you know, breakfast and lunch and all sorts of lovely things. They go out on holidays. They, they, everything's lovely. It's emotional needs that aren't met. And this is the difficulties. And that's why the early, the wiring in the brain is wired up with regard to emotional development. So that's why when we look at what's going on between a parent and a child, we, we often think, Oh, they, they look all right, they, they look like they're a secure dyad, but we're only looking at what's going on between them in a very short period, and we're just seeing them smiling and, you know, talking together and just an everyday interaction. We're not seeing an emotional or an attachment interaction. Does that make sense? So it's really, it's easy to sometimes think, oh, they look okay, they look really good. There's no, no, nothing to see here. But we're not seeing the, in the, the emotional interactions that are going on moment by moment by moment by moment. We're not seeing uh, at home when the kid's um, totally needing help and the parent collapses helplessly. And, you know, I can't do anything for you. You know, you just go and figure it out yourself. Or, you know, when, when you, they, the kid maybe, um, you know, some t I code the adult attachment interview. I'll give you an example like that. And this is about a, an adult telling you about their childhood experience, for example. And one of the... Um, one of the interviews as an example that we use as an example in teaching is about a young boy and his mother. And the, the, in the example, 
arm we use in class, was he broke his arm. And he wasn't able to go to his mother with his broken arm, so he hid it. And because she would have been angry at him because he broke his arm. But, on, but apart from that, they you know, went on holidays and she, bought, she schooled him, sent him to school and they you know, had lovely lunches and he talked about having lovely lunches and you know, going on holidays and, and described what seemed like a lovely childhood except he couldn't go to her when he was hurt or upset. So can you see what I mean? So we don't see that stuff often unless we get a sense of it somewhere, somehow. So then we'll, this is the pathologizing one. This is the one where we, we really, um, where kids have problems. And this is what we're talking about with the adverse childhood experiences. So with, with a child with a disorganized attachment, this is what they would say. When I need help and reassurance, um, you scare me. I don't know what to do. I need to come to you for comfort and safety, but I can't. You're not safe. When I need your help, but I'm scared of what you might do to me, I become confused and don't know whether I should go to you or run away. I can't resolve my fear of you and may need to go to you for safety, so I have nowhere to go. And that's what we call the disorganized attachment. So this is what we see in the pattern. I just thought I'd put this up for you because it's a kind of interesting thing. So when you, this, these sorts of kids, what they do with their parent is because they, def, they don't have any, any way to get safety, what they do is they see the parent, they move away rather than approach. They look frightened. They display contradictory behaviors, so they might approach and avoid at the same time. They show approach or they get, show anger, they fear them, they freeze, they show confusion. So you can see that they show a lot of um, contradictory behaviours. So these types of caregivers um, are frightening, basically. So this is once again what um, April was talking about with the adverse childhood experiences. And this is what we look at, is that these are frightening parents, but, it's, but you, you, as I said before, you may not know it. Because it's, it's often during an attachment situation. Be physically, emotionally, or sexually abusive. So when they, sometimes these parents us, uh, may only be frightening in terms of they dissociate under stress. And so they're totally unavailable to their baby because they're just blank. They have their own unresolved grief or trauma. So when we talk about that, we often think about they may have lost a parent in their childhood. So when we ask that question about, did you lose a parent in your childhood? or someone close or, or something. That's a really important question because if they've lost a parent in, uh, under the age of 14, it may never have been resolved. So it, it may mean they have a disorganized attachment themselves. And so we know from research that that 
means if a parent has a disorganised attachment, they may well have a disorganised child. So these are the sorts of things that we look at. So these are just the distributions per population. I just thought I'd shove them in there. And that's, we know that 62% of kids are secure, 25 are avoidant, um, about 10%, 9% are uh, insecure, ambivalent, and 15 disorganised. Now that's in a normal population, in a clinical population it's quite different, but I haven't written that up. And that's um, the adult attachment um, distribution, and it's pretty similar to... Um, to the kids, but um, adults have a rare um, classification called cannot classify. Okay, so if we do this, we have what we did before was a secure attachment is a protection and insecure is a risk. So it makes sense, doesn't it? And we just do our risk factors and we've already gone through that. Um, and of course our adverse childhood experiences, physical illnesses of both parent and child, mental illness, financial stress. I've also put their ghosts in the nursery and of course ghosts in the nursery is a very famous phrase and from a very famous paper by Selma Freiberg. But essentially what ghosts in the nursery are is that for some um, caregivers, when they have a baby, the baby comes but the baby brings with them ghosts. And the ghosts are the parents' experiences from childhood. So whatever happened in their childhood, they all, all these experiences come back and cluster around and interfere with the parents' ability to be the best parent they possibly can. Because the parent may want to be all the things that, that, that make the best possible parent, but what the way that we're parented as a child, the moment we're put in our parents' arms, the way we, we are parented is our blueprint. It's unconscious, but the moment-by-moment -moment interactions that we have is the blueprint for parenting. So if you have an experience from a parent that is less than um, optimal, so, you, uh, so the parent was sexually abused or lost a parent in childhood or is depressed or their own parent was depressed and for whatever reason, whatever happened, all those experiences come to the fore and cluster around that parent and interfere with what she's trying to do or he's trying to do. And they're, they're internal and they're unknown. And how can you fight a ghost if you can't see them or you don't know them? And that's what our job is, is to bring to consciousness the ghosts so the parent can fight the ghosts away. So that's what it means. Well, what mit mitigates risk? It's dependent on how many risk factors there are. Suddenly it became a thingy. The type of risk and if it can be resolved or lessened. Um, 
the supportive family and social relationships. So that's all really important. So you can have all those risk factors, but you know, if you have supportive family and you have supportive community, um, a secure attachment, and good levels of reflective functioning, then you know, risk can be balanced out. So it's really important to find out what other factors there are that will, will mitigate those other factors that you might have found. Because, you know, strengths are important. So there are some red flags. And these alert you that the baby is at risk of an insecure attachment. So the baby's attachment is formed by the moment-by-moment -moment interactions. It's formed when he's scared and needs comfort and safety and it develops over the first 12 months. So we know that insecure attachment is a risk factor in itself. So we need to look at the red flags and wonder specifically what we're going to do. So these are the outcomes of secure attachment and this is why we really, really, really want to make sure it happens or that when we're working with parents, that we enhance their capacity to parent more securely. That's self-regulation and emotion recognition, more empathy for others, because if we're empathic, we, we're, people like us more, basically, and we, we're able to help people. We have greater learning, problem-solving and memory skills, we're, because, you know, if we're not busy trying to keep safe and keep close to someone, then we can, we can learn. We have greater social competence and less conflict with peers, greater coping skills under stress, greater resilience, more flexible and persistent. And that's, those are cognitive skills. If, you know, when, when you, kids who are secure think more flexibly and they're more persistent with their work. Have more enjoyable relationships. If, if you trust people and you think all people are okay because your experience with your caregivers was you trusted them and you, then they seemed really loving and okay, you, you think other pe you're going to go through life thinking that other people are pretty much like that. Some aren't, you know, but most people are. And that I'm okay too. And people are going to like me. More confident, conform to rules and follow instructions. You know, I don't need to, you know, you know make a fuss about things. You know, I'm, I'm cool. I can follow instructions. Show more positive than negative emotions. Able to seek help and manage stress better. More creative and more attuned to social behaviour. So those are the outcomes. Just because for the first three to five years of your life, someone was responsive to your attachment at, uh, calls for help <laughs> and you responded appropriately. You gave affection and love and you, you, you touched and you did all this stuff. You made them feel good about themselves. I, you know, it's not much to ask for, really, truly. So these are the outcomes of insecure attachment. And you know, we can do it. We can make we can make that happen. So finds empathy difficult. So if someone, you know, um, 
somebody doesn't give you empathy as a kid, so you know it's kind of like, well, rejects emotional needs, then you're not gonna, that's not empathy, right? So you're not gonna understand what empathy is, so you're not gonna be empathic. So they've done research on kids um, with regard to empathy, and they've found that secure children respond to other babies' cries and will go to them. So, and preschool kids. They'll respond to them, they'll go to them, they'll soothe them and calm them. Whereas insecure kids won't. So they can identify and manage their emotions. They, well, they don't, that's wrong. They're less able to ask for help. The tendency to look for solitary solutions to their problems because they can't go and ask for help. So they, they you know, will ruminate. They'll, you know, um, one of the questions in the adult attachment interviews, what did you do when you were upset, emotionally upset? Where, what did you do? And so many answers I read is, I go to my room. I used to go to my room. Or I used to talk to my dog. Or I'd speak to my dollies. So that's a, that's, that response is generally in an insecure transcript. It's really, interesting. it's really interesting how people talk about how they manage their, 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 in their ways to looking for help. So you, you've got to understand that insecurity, as you saw that the numbers of insecure people in the population, it's not abnormal. These are all normal patterns. It's just that that's how um, we've all learned to manage. And when we all get along perfectly well, it's just that it's, it's not as ideal. Relationships may not be as satisfying. Fewer relationships may, uh, may be less popular, may have memory and learning difficulties, have risk factors when placed under stress, less coping ability, withdraw from social activities, less flexible in thinking and acting, may tend to be more angry, aggressive in conflict, alternatively may withdraw in conflict and difficulty with separations. So that, this is what we see with kids. So when we see kids in preschool and school, we, we find that these are the sorts of things that people are struggling with. And then, you know, this often is about the ADHD and the autism spectrum disorder, which may not be as prevalent. And if you work in my area in the attachment field, there's a, there is a lot of discussion that it's overdiagnosed when it's actually more likely to be um, parenting. Because when these things are diagnosed, often the parents are not included in the assessment process. That it's just a, yes, here, here have, have the riddle, and, but what's happening with regard to the parent-child interaction? So this is the outcomes of disorganised, um, blah, blah. Disorganised. So these, these uh, have a very unstable sense of who they are. That, well, you know, at least with the other two, they, uh, they know who they are, this is that. But this, this poor children, they, they don't, it's very unclear about who I am and what I'm doing. Behavioural and learning difficulties, aggression, anger and violence, chronic depression and anxiety, relationship difficulties with peers and teachers, decreased ability and flexibility to tolerate stress, and you saw the brain that was, you know, a bit smaller. 
By the time these kids are six years old, they generally have developed a, an organised way of operating in a relationship. And it's often a controlling and punitive manner with their parents. So they push them around, they tell them what to do, they're angry kids, smack at them, that sort of stuff. Or they're controlling in a caretaking role. They look after them. They're, they're very solicitous. They'll do stuff like comb mum's hair or, you know, offer to do stuff for her or they'll be look after her. They're a caretaker. Difficulty trusting anyone, fearful and helpless in response to distress. And it can be the beginning of a severe mental illness. So what should we look for when we're doing this stuff? Well, how well does the caregiver reflect on their baby's experience? This is a really good one to think about. What's the, when, when the caregiver talks to you, are they thinking about it from the baby's point of view? Do they, what do they talk about with regard to their baby? Is the baby just naughty and just not doing what they're told? Or is there something about it from the baby's perspective? How attuned are they to their baby? What are they doing with their baby? What are they doing with their own emotions? And how do they respond to their baby's distress? Those are four key questions with regard to what they're doing with each other. So we observe these behaviours with parents and we really, we really ask ourselves, what does it all mean? And when they, when they ask us questions, we have to really think, what's underneath that question? It may be a really, really simple question. You know, why doesn't my baby sleep? But what's underneath that question? Because there's, you know, the, underneath the question is, why doesn't my baby sleep? But really underneath that question, it might be, actually, I know, have no idea about sleep. And I don't know that my baby's only six weeks old and developmentally, I'm what, I have developmentally inappropriate expectations and I need a whole lesson on what a six-week-old baby needs to know, needs, needs to do at this age. So what's underneath that question? And many, many other things. So how to help is, what am I doing? Back again. Where are we? So there, go on. So foster these behaviours. So of course we've done this. Sensitivity and soothing, affectionate, affection, responsiveness, predictability. So some caregivers love routines, but the routine is their routine, not a baby. So we want a flexible cue-based routine. So going by a baby's cues, not mother cues. We want co-regulation, so the mother co-regulates, and mutual play, enjoyment, and delight. So we want a sensitive caregiver who has well-rounded appropriate interactions, so the infant feels satisfied from the outcome of her interactions. It's an iterative process that guides by, that's guided by the baby's facial and vocal cues. And it's a willingness to resolve and repair. So that's what sensitive caregiving looks like. So we, we know that that's what we want the, the ascent. And a caregiver who's not so sensitive, because we know sensitivity is a hallmark of security. So 
That's what it looks like. And what's the time? Should I... S oh, no, we've got plenty of time, haven't we? I'm looking at them doing lunch and I'm thinking, oh, my God. So we want prompts. Yep. So we want prompts, soothing responses to distress. So because I see I keep hammering away at distress here because that's the attachment focus we want. And we always want a parent to be focusing on, their, on an infant's distress because that's where trust evolves. Undivided attention. And, you know, we've got the worst thing happening at the moment, and that's a phone. And the baby's... Baby doesn't get attention because of phones. So April was talking about that... Um, that the ba you don't talk to a baby until a baby can talk back to you. So it's really important for parents to understand that the baby needs to be spoken to right from the beginning. You know, and they don't need to look at an electronic device. Because a baby, there's been studies done where they've shown the baby, the mother on an electronic device, and the mother, you know, up front. And the baby knows too well that that mother on the device is not her, the mother. They're so discerning. They know what a person is. I don't understand why people <laughs> think babies are dumb. You, you know, they're programmed. They're wired to interact with people. We have a social brain. And the right side of our brain is, our, is what's most active in the first 18 months. And in the first 18 months, you know, they put, you know, those caps on and wired up a mother and wired up a baby. And they've looked at both brains when they're interacting and the mother's right side is lit up and the baby's side is lit up. And that's the attachment side of the brain and the bonding side. And both of them are working so hard in interacting with each other. So we want vocalising, responding to baby's vocalisations. So sometimes we see, you know, the baby working really hard to, to get mum's attention. And mum's just somewhere, don't know where. So it's really important. So for the first six months, the baby will work really, really hard to get mum's attention. But over the next six months, the baby will begin to adapt to what the mother does as attachment develops, because as I've said, attachment develops over the tw first 12 to 18 months. So how it develops is the baby will adapt. It will adapt to whatever mum does the most consistently. So if she, if she does all this stuff, um, expressing appropriate motion, following baby's lead, timely, soothing stimulation, reading, responding to cues, then a secure attachment will develop. If she doesn't do that stuff, after six months, eventually the baby will start to adapt to that and they will develop whatever um, relationship they develop. And the baby will, will just 
um, it's like any relationship, isn't it? You you adapt to the relationship. So if you you at work, you get to know people, and first of all, you might be really friendly and and all the rest of it, and gradually you go, oh well, okay, she's not really interested in that. I'll just um, adapt to how she is, and that's that. And then there'll be other people who, you know, they're really, oh, yeah, she's really great and we'll do this and we'll do that and we'll have coffee. So we adapt to relationships. And the baby will adapt and that's how attachment develops. It takes 12 months for the baby, but that's what happens. And that's the wiring of the brain. And that's the structure. That's the foundation that the baby's whole... Um, uh, wiring is built on and that's why we want to get it right the first time. So the sensitive interactions are the primary contact context in which emotional regulation begins to emerge. So of course we know the baby can't regulate themselves so he needs his parent to co-regulate and they need a sensitive soothing caregiver to regulate their high levels of emotional arousal which is their attachment system. And they need a consistently affectionate, sensitive and comforting adult presence. So that's, uh, that's why we need a sensitive caregiver for the attachment system. So they need interactions where the first social and emotional behaviour occurs and they're bi-directional, of course. So everything that goes on, the baby doesn't do anything outside of what a caregiver does with the baby. That's their world. If, if you just left a baby in a crib, then nothing would happen and that would be the end. So the caregiver has to observe and respond and then regulate the infant's physiological and emotional states. And as I keep banging on about, these repeated actions are involved in the attachment can't say it too much. Sorry. So what we want her to do is maximise the pleasant feelings. That's the whole point. The baby needs to feel good about themselves. That's the, that's the neural pathways we want her to, to, to give the baby. Maximise lovely feelings about myself. I'm a nice person and minimise unpleasant ones. So when the attachment system is activated and I need help, I need to feel safe, and I need someone to come and do something for me, then that is, that is helped and calmed down and I feel good and I trust that you're always going to do that for me. So this, is a, and this moves out of rupture and repair, as I've said. And this repeated interaction then affects how the attachment system is, works. And this helps then the baby manage, ultimately, their own fear, frustration and anger. So the, all these interactions, this consistent over and over and over again, will help the baby ultimately do that. They'll be able to manage all of this themselves adequately and okay. So what... Drives me nuts. Where are we? Do we? Yeah? Do we do that? I can't remember where we even are. 
We did that? Where are we? Yep, that's it. So, so what we want to do, and this is really important because often parents only look at the behaviour and they don't connect that there's emotions underneath it. So we have to help them understand that there's something underneath that behaviour. And they're de relevant to developmental age. And that, that may not be actually a difficulty, it might be just that that's what babies do. You know, they're, might, they're not being a difficult baby, they're just being a baby. So one of those particular instances is the normal developmental crying curve. Babies just cry a lot in si at six to four months. So they're not being naughty or difficult, they're just being a baby. And it's okay just to be a baby because it's a baby. So that's one of those instances where, you know, why is my baby crying? And understanding the meaning underneath the question. Because the parent doesn't get it, that there's a whole developmental meaning. You know, one of the good things about parents is, if you can give them a developmental meaning underneath the, underneath the crying, um, they're really good with development. If there's some developmental um, reason, they're happy. Because it means that their baby's developing normally, that they're doing something that's perfectly okay, and they can, and they can, it, it, it just kind of validates it in some way. It's not abnormal, it's not weird, it's not, it's, and then you can give them strategies. So parents' interpretation of an event is minor. So, you know, often, you know, they, they can only relate it to themselves. You know, I don't think that's a big deal. Why is the baby thinking that's a big deal? They're not thinking about it from the baby's point of view. This is the problem. And I'm going to talk about this in a minute. They're minimising the baby's experience. And you know, it's a red flag. If they're minimising the baby's experience, it's a red flag. That's, ex that's insecure type of thinking. The baby will internalise whatever consistent response the caregiver gives. So if the caregiver's minimising a baby's experience, we want to help her understand that, no, it's a baby. <laughs> if the baby's crying, they need help. They need help and protection. They want you to do something to soothe and calm and, and get them to understand that it's all okay. As, you know. So if we have sensitive, it's not gone on, yeah, okay. So if the parent can do all of that, by about three years, have I missed a slide? Oh no. By about three years, three and a half, four, a child will be able to manage impulses for a very short period, concentrate on an interesting task, follow simple instructions, have a memory for consistent rules, have basic decision-making skills and maybe a little planning and able to empathise with others. It takes that long for this to occur. And the fact is that many parents overestimate the baby's ability to self-regulate, especially at the age which they can share, take turns 
manage their impulse and manage their emotions. Most parents think they can do this at two. And that's why the whole tantrum thing is like, you're just being naughty, you ought to know by now you can't do that. And they can't. They just absolutely can't. Because this only happens between three and a half and four years. And only if they're co-regulated and helped right up until that age. So they really, really have to have a lot of help. And it's the secure type parenting that will make that happen. So three and a half to four, they need a lot of work. So if they're not, they're not co-regulated, they will have trouble with impulse control, resisting distractions, managing emotions, focusing and thinking, sharing and taking turns. What does that look like? ADHD? It's so important, our work, because we can provide them with so much information about what, what, what helps. They have more difficulties at preschool, school, with peers and teachers. Just because they, they, they haven't been co-regulated effectively through sensitive, responsive, consistent caregiving. So, where are we up to? So, this is another Donald Winnicott. He says, the sensitive mother puts herself in her baby's shoes and wonders what it's like to be him. So, this is this good enough mother thing. She's able to soothe and de-escalate high levels of distress in everyday moments. She doesn't seek to teach her baby self-control. She runs counter to her normal responses to become very upset so she can help her baby regulate his distress. So that's what we're looking for. We're looking for that. All right, so we're just going to think a little bit about what this. So sensitive caregiving is the hallmark of secure attachment. And it's consistent, sensitive and responsive caregiving is believed to predict secure attachment at one year of age. And the other major predictor of secure attachment is high levels of caregiver reflective functioning or parental mentalizing. Okay, so this is really, really important. So what is it? And this is really important for us too, because this is all about our work and how we can, we can work ourselves. So it's our ability to understand what's going on in our own and other people's minds. So we talk a lot about reflective functioning, don't we? And it's, a, it's an interesting um, uh, concept. So what underlies it is this ability is the capacity to understand the mental states of yourself and other people. So what's going on in our own minds? It's about understanding our own emotions and other people's emotions, our own thoughts, other people's thoughts, our motivations, wishes and desires. So these are the sorts of questions that we can ask ourselves. How do I make meaning of my own world? How do I make meaning of that person's world? How are we influencing each other? 
So reflective functioning or mentalising enables us to connect with people and try to understand what they're feeling, thinking and needing. And this is related to secure attachment. So you can see that if a, if a parent can um, do that, how, how am I making meaning of what's going on for me? How can I make meaning of what's going on for my baby? And how are we influencing each other? Wow. Those three questions are just totally, can make so much difference to them. And that's mentalising. So men, parental mentalisation, it's very important to the parent-child relationship. So it includes reflective functioning and insightfulness and mind-mindedness. So these three things are all very close to each other. You can, you can divide them all up, but um, we're not going to because we don't have time. But it is the precursor to child's social, emotional and cognitive development. And it's really, really important. So we'll just run through it. Um, so all of this means the parent regards the baby as a person with um, separate psychological needs. That's what it means. So a way to know if she does is through the way she speaks to her baby. That is, what time is it? Are we stopping? I'll just, it, we're almost done. A way to know is if she does this through the way she speaks to her baby. So commenting on the baby's mental states. So does the baby has emotion and feelings as different to hers, what the baby might be interested in, wishes to do or play, and thoughts about things. So it enables the parent to reflect on their child's behaviour. The parent's attuned interpretations need to seem reasonable and compatible with the baby's behaviours, emotions and experiences. What we don't want is a non-attuned mentalisation which results in the parent's misinterpretation of the baby's experience. And we see this all the time where they distort something and it's unreasonable and un even unconnected to the relationship and that's an insecure interpretation and it's unpredictable. So this enables the parent to reflect on their child's behaviour and connect it. Enables the parent to distinguish between their own feelings and their babies, and understands that the child experiences the world differently to themselves. So what we can do is support parental mentalisation during observations of the caregiver and child. Um, and does the caregiver attend to their baby's need for comfort? what the type of caregiving behaviours are, and playtime play and mutual enjoyment. We can do it during discussion, so we can connect the child's feelings to their behaviour. We can connect caregivers' feelings and behaviours and connect influence of caregivers' behaviours and feelings to the feelings of the, of the baby. So we're just about there. So some good ways to en enhance reflective function is by posing reflective questions, speaking in the child's voice, I hate this. I'm so totally over you. And wandering with the parent. So these are some examples of reflective questions that will help reflective functioning or mentalising. So what were you thinking or feeling at the time? 
How are you thinking or feeling right now? How do you handle those feelings? How do you hope your child will be able to respond to those feelings? And how would you like to respond to your child having those feelings? So this is speaking through the child's voice. And this is a really good way to help a parent um, with their capacity to mentalise and think about the child's point of view. And it's very concrete. It allows the parent to really see their child as another person with thoughts and feelings and intentions all of their own. And she, you could say, if she could talk, I bet she'd say, or look at the way she calms down right now, or look at her looking at you, she wants to say. And you could also use that other phrase is, um, if she could talk, what, what would she be saying to you right now? That's a really easy one. So, and the wondering question is just such a great question because it's really non-threatening and it's really easy and it's such a, an, an easy way to help a parent reflect I'm wondering if you're feeling that your baby is doing that on purpose. I wonder if you're feeling whatever when your baby child did that. I wonder that your baby is feeling needing. I wonder what he's trying to do. I'm wondering if his crying really upsets you. And I wonder if she's feeling a little lonely in there by herself. So you can do all sorts of stuff that will enhance their way of thinking that, you know, they may not even think the baby would be lonely. So research is providing evidence that high levels of maternal reflective functioning predict secure attachment at 12 months. So nurturing parents' capacity to reflect on her baby's mental state is essential. So regular reflective practice activities are also essential to ensure that you continue to do the demanding work that you do. And that's what you can do. You can wonder about what's happening for mother and baby and yourself. You can be more aware of the parent's perspective. You can think about the parent's emotions, behaviours, needs and desires. You can reflect about the baby's emotions, behaviours, needs and desires. Reflect on how both you, baby and the caregiver influence the re interactions because remember you're part of it all. Adjust your responses and expectations to match the parent's challenges. Make meaning of your own reactions to the parents. Distinguish your own feelings from another. Develop ways to regulate difficult emotions and feelings, because believe me, and you know it, parents just make you feel something sometimes. Make meanings from your own emotions and behaviours and others. And that's reflective practice. It's quite different from clinical supervision where you, you discuss cases. This is true reflective practice where you begin to make meanings of your, of your own and others' behaviour and the influence you have on each other. Okay, so last thing. So attachment research enhances our understanding in how important the first relationship to lifelong health and well-being attachment is. It gives us a wealth of knowledge in how adult attachment and associated patterns of caregiving behaviours affect their child's developing attachment. It gives us strategies to assist parents manage and respond to their infant's fundamental attachment needs and enables us to work with parents at a time when they're really primed to make changes and that's really satisfying. And that's the end.